I talked a little bit about discipleship within the church. Right? We looked at Titus chapter 2 and we saw this example of, of older men uh, ministering to and discipling younger men, training them in the way, um, in, in the word, right? Coming alongside relationally, training them up in the word. Um, older women doing the same for younger women, not just in the word, but even simply how to love your husband, how to manage your home. Um, so we, we looked at a lot of things within that. And when I told Pastor Ben that I was going to kind of continue with that this week, and then about Friday or Saturday, I was like, yeah, so that's not happening. Something completely different. Um, but again, we also, if you remember last week, we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we saw that all of Scripture, that means all of it total, every single thing, is inspired by God. God is the source, and He is the author, and is the one who is the authority behind Scripture. Right? We saw that the Bible as a whole is authored by God. And this morning, we're going to look a little bit more at that. We're going to be all over Okay, we're not just staying in one text because I like to, uh, basically, I like to have God tell you instead of me telling you. Um, and the more verses I can incorporate, uh, the better off I think that we are if God's speaking rather than my own uh, cleverness. Um, but we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. And I'm super excited to be able to go through this uh, this morning. Again, keeping in mind that all of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end is written by God, it's given by God, and all of it points to the person of Christ. Um, and within this framework of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we'll do a little bit of context here in a minute, um, but one of the things, things that we're going to be talking about is this idea of covenant. What is a covenant? It's something that we hear a lot um, in church. Um, it's kind of an old, older-fashioned term, um, and I tried to think of a different word for it, trying to think of something that might be a little more modern or less like archaic sounding with the term of covenant, but there's really nothing better than that actual word to describe what it is. Um, I like to make up words all the time. Um, Brittany tells me all the time they're not words, and I said, I, I just made it up. Um, when I try to describe my cleverness, I say cleverity. I think that's a fantastic word, personally. My cleverity is high, right? But we're looking at this word of covenant, and I just I thought about it and said, you know what? That's God uses covenant, we're going to go ahead and we're going to do this. Um, so we look at this idea of covenant, and when we portray it in modern terms, one of the most familiar areas where we see a covenant relationship is within the context of marriage. Now, covenant is very different than just an agreement or an understanding. Okay, a lot of times I'm in business, we have, we have understandings, and unless they're written down, they're not necessarily enforced as well. Um, so those of you that have been in business for any amount of time, you, got, you draw up legally binding contracts, don't you? Ones that say, if this contract is fulfilled, there will be a blessing, likely in the forms of, of money and productivity. But if not, there's actual legal consequences if you don't live up to it. So if you're a builder and, and someone shorts you on supplies or mischarges you and doesn't do the job that they're supposed to do, there can be legal ramifications for that. What we're going to be looking at is, is the idea of covenant in a much more serious fashion to a point where it's more about the relationship than what you think your immediate needs or desires are. And we're going to flesh this out a little bit throughout. I don't want to spend too much time um, because we're going to see it pretty clearly. But uh, modern America doesn't truly understand the idea of covenant as much. We look at divorce rates and they're extremely high. We look at people um, promising things to one another and it just doesn't ever happen. We, we don't truly understand what it is, what commitment always is. We have a consumer mindset which says, I want this so I can get this from you. 
Um, and the relationship that we have with God is one of covenant. If we've come to believe in his son, if we are saved, we have a covenantal relationship with God. It's not a consumer mind. I have a consumer mindset in relationship with Starbucks. Okay? I know the people at Starbucks. They know me fairly well. Probably, they're probably more familiar with me than they should be. Um, but I know them and they know me. But if I find a place that gives better coffee at a cheaper price, I'm out of there. No question, okay? I live right by a Safeway and by a city market. The one that I go to is whichever one's going to be cheaper for what it is that I want, okay? That's kind of that consumer mindset. But when we look at the covenant of marriage and this, again, the relationship between us and God, we see that the relationship is more important than the current needs. That the things that we just selfishly may want, we're not willing to, to go outside of that relationship, to harm that relationship just to get those things. And we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're going to see God's covenant with David. And before anyone uh, tunes me out and saying, well, covenant is just for, for Israel, it's just for the Jews, stop that thinking and throw it away right now. This isn't just a Jewish uh, concept. And before we open up uh, the context here in 2 Samuel 7, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity to, to gather um, as a body of believers and worship you, to be able to sing these praises to you. And we thank you um, that you are, are sure to fulfill your promises. We thank you that we can fully trust and rely on you. And God, I just pray that as we open up your word that we would see you uh, clearly this morning and that we would be able to give you the glory. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. A little background before we get to chapter 7. Um, 2 Samuel comes at a time, we're going to kind of start briefly just in, in verse, or in chapter 3. We're seeing a relationship between Saul and David. A very familiar story. We see David is going to become king. Saul has been removed as king of Israel. And we see that there's going to be pretty much a war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And this is played out in chapters 3 and chapter 4. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is made king of Israel. He is officially, and, and finally for everyone to see, made king of Israel. In chapter 6, David defeats the Jebusites and takes the city of Jerusalem. They finally take it back. David is now in control of it. And finally, the Ark of the Covenant, which we saw for a long time throughout 1 and 2 Samuel as well, is returned to Jerusalem. Um, the Ark was a symbol of the throne of the divine king. It was very important to them um, because God was going to be with them. And those of you... Um, that have been um, coming for afternoon service and, and the study of 1 Samuel that we're walking through, we're able to see um, the ark and we're able to see some of the, the benefits as well as the um, consequences of not following it. It was something, um, how many of you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones? Come on now. I'm just a, there's got to be more hands than that. This is, this is rough. I mean, it's got Harrison Ford in it. <laughs> I love Harrison Ford, okay? Um, but we see the Ark of the Covenant, they got a couple things right. Mostly not um, all of it, though, um, for those of you that have seen it. Um, the ark is coming back to Jerusalem at this point. So David brings the ark back, a symbol of God, um, a symbol of the throne of the divine king. And this is where we pick up in chapter 7. Our main portion is going to be verses 12 through 17. Uh, we're going to speed all the way up to verse 12. Uh, but starting in verse 1, And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, this is talking about David, and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies, that the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. So David 
is saying, telling Nathan that he wants to build a house for the ark to actually stay. Um, we're going to call this a forever home. He's saying, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark is just going back and forth as we move in and out of the tent. David expresses a desire to build for the Lord a place for the ark to dwell. Verses 4 through 7, And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, Why build ye not for me an house of cedar? God reminds David that he has always moved with the people in and out of the tabernacle, saying that he's basically had to be dwelling in a tent throughout these curtains. So David is saying, God, I want to build you this, this house, a house for you to dwell in. And God is responding, and Nathan is telling him all this. And so God is reminding that he's done it, and he's saying, yeah, shouldn't I have a house? Makes sense. Verses 8 through 9, Now therefore, so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from the sheepcote, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. A reminder of providence here. God is saying, Don't you, do you remember where you were? You were tending to the sheep, but I have brought you out of that, being set over my people. And in verse 9, And I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest, and have cut off all mine enemies out of thy sight, and have made thee a great name, like unto the name of the great men that are in the earth. So David has been made a great name. Again, king of Israel, this is a pretty significant position. And up to this point, God is simply reminding David of all the things that he's already done up to this point. He's giving him a reminder, which is something we typically see um, before prophecy. I know we're flying through here, and then we're going to slow down a little bit. Don't worry. Uh, verses 10 through 11, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more, as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also... The Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. So verses 10 and 11, God is saying that he will give Israel rest and will make a house for David. So we're seeing this interaction, and again, um, can you just imagine being someone like Nathan, being a prophet who is receiving a word from the Lord, and you've been instructed um, to pass on this message. I always think it's incredible, um, the idea that, that this individual, whether it's Nathan or Samuel or any of the other prophets, that you're receiving a word from the Lord to then go and tell someone else, like just so clearly. I just think that would be a tremendous um, thing to actually have that interaction with God in that way. Which gets us up to verse 12. Um, 12 through 17, again, is the main portion of where we're going to be, and then we're going to be um, in a lot of different places. Again, seeing the whole of Scripture. Verse 12, And when thy days be fulfilled... And thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. 
If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. There's a whole lot that's going on from verses 12 to 17. Within this, we see in verse 12 that God will establish a kingdom, but this kingdom won't be simply led by David, but it'll be one for David's offspring. We see in verse 13, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Do you remember at the beginning of this chapter, David was saying, God, I want to build a house for you to dwell in. I want to establish a house for you to dwell in forever. And God's response is, yeah, we're, that's going to happen, but you won't be the one that does it. Verse 13, he's saying that it will be your son that will do it. Your offspring will build me that house. But even more so, I'm going to establish your house forever. Okay, now picture yourself as David here. God, I want to build a house for you to dwell in forever. And God returns with, I'm establishing for you a house that will dwell forever. That's a pretty cool thing. That's an incredible promise that God is giving to David here. Verse 14, I will be his father and he, will be my, he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. We see that there's still going to be this, this relationship, but there's also going to be um, punishment as well. God is still maintaining that he is a righteous authority. I love verse 15 because especially after you, you study through Saul, Saul was also given um, something, there was something that was similarly um, going to be given to Saul, but again, we know that Saul, because of his disobedience, the kingdom and the lineage, the dynasty that would go forever was taken away from Saul because of his continued rebellion and continued disobedience. It was snatched from him, and now David is able to be king. But verse 15, he says, But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. There's a, lot, there's a lot of things going on. We see he's establishing for David a line that will be continuing on forever. This line that will establish the kingdom forever. Forever is a long time. Yes? We agree to that? Imagine being told that through your line, the king, this kingdom will be established forever. It's a covenant that we see being established between God and between David, and, and God, God is telling him that this is going to happen. Your kingdom, your offspring, will establish the kingdom forever. But verse 14, we're seeing that there will still be punishment. There will still be consequences if there is disobedience. Um, just a quick pointer. The, this covenant was anticipated back in Genesis chapter 17, um, looking at that verse briefly, chapter 17, verse 6, telling Abraham, And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee. Also anticipated back in the Mosaic Covenant, back in Deuteronomy 17. We're seeing God through his covenants expressing not only himself, but pointing to the person of Christ who is to come. There's a lot of history that's going to be going on and, and trying to do it all in one day probably isn't going to, to be done successfully. But God gives a covenant to Abraham, providing 
a realm and a people for God's kingdom. With, through Moses, a law for the kingdom. And through David, he's promising and providing a human king for the kingdom. From the very beginning, again, back in Genesis with the interaction of Abraham, we see this starting to be established. So from the very beginning, God is setting forth his plan and his purpose and again, David is wanting to build a permanent house, but God is saying, David, it is through your offspring that the kingdom will be established forever. Imagine God telling you that for your family. Your offspring will be the one to bring he who will establish the kingdom forever. That's a pretty cool thing to be told, isn't it? It's incredible, and we look at this and we see Verse uh, 13, we know that it wasn't David who was meant to live forever. We know that it's not David who built the temple, that it was Solomon. Again, verse 12, when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. David is not meant to live forever, but, but his offspring. Again, this idea of, of, of lineage here being passed through. But verse 13, it's talking about Solomon, saying, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we can look at this and say, okay, we're talking about Solomon here. So Solomon is going to be the offspring that God is talking about. He's foretelling about the seed of David, that Solomon will be the one who will establish the kingdom. But the Bible portrays Solomon as a sinner. Flip over to 1 Kings chapter 11. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, we start to see some more of these conditions and, and what, it will, what it will be for the kingdom to be established. 1 Kings 11, 11 through 13, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. Notwithstanding in thy days, I will not do it for David thy father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of thy son. Howbeit I will not rend away all the kingdom, but will give one tribe to thy son for David my servant's sake, and for Jerusalem's sake, which I have chosen. Because Solomon, this is at a point where he has married foreign wives. Again, we know the story of Solomon. We know that he was the wisest man to have ever lived at this point. But we also know the continuation of that story. He married uh, many, many wives. I don't remember the exact number. It's super high. Hundreds, right? Married foreign wives, and he started to worship their gods. False gods. We know that there's only one true God. Any other God outside of that is a false god. And Solomon is beginning to worship them. How can, the king, how can God's kingdom be established and secured through a man who's going to be worshiping false gods? It simply can't, it can't happen and this shows that the promise of David's kingdom cannot happen as long as descendants of David are rebellious and disobedient. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, David is reminding Solomon, this is shortly before his death, telling him that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee a man on the throne of Israel. So what do we see? When, when Pastor Ben went through the study of, um, in the book of Judges a while back, some of you might remember this, and he's going also through uh, First and Second Kings on Wednesday nights. 
Um, a lot of these things are coming together where we see that, that when the people are actively serving God, when they're obedient to him, Israel is blessed. They're not under captivity. But when the kings are rotten, right, when the kings are disobedient, what, did, what do we see happening? We see them being, being chastened, right? We see them being punished by God. We see them um, internally causing strife with one another. We see them doing what it is, following their own way. But additionally, we see that this, this promise isn't actually being fulfilled yet. Because the kings, again, the kings are ones that are supposed to be the leaders, right? Who are they under authority to? They're still under the authority of God. They're not, um, they're not autonomous leaders within themselves. And so as we're looking at this promise, we're seeing that God is establishing this kingdom of David forever. Saying, David, your offspring will be the ones who will establish the kingdom forever. And people look at this, and, and Israel's looking at this, and they're saying, okay, when we're faithful and obedient, we're prospering, but all of these kings are terrible. So over time, they continue to look at this, and they see all of these, these kings being rebellious, and Israel is in ruins, and captivity comes once again to the nation of Israel. But they still knew that the promise was secure. Even through the trial, they recognized and understood God is the one who made the promise, and when God gives us a promise, we can be secure in that promise. Um, just like the song that we just heard, right? Pretty much if God has started it, he's going to finish it. We can be confident in God's promises. We can have full security that it's going to happen. They're in ruins because the kings were disobedient. And because of that, because the kings were still disobedient, this covenant relationship that we saw wasn't quite yet fully established. We knew that God is going to live up to his end. We know the kingdom will be established. We know the hope that we have is going to come. We know all of these things are true. But who is failing to live up to their end of this covenant relationship? The kings, the men. This would be in a marriage relationship. Um, marriage is a scary thing. Isn't it? Um, that's going to be a different sermon for a different day. Um, but how do I know that my wife is going to surely live up to the promises that she has given to me? I have hope, but I don't know 100% certain. I just don't. And how, do I, how does she know that I'm going to live up to that commitment 100% completely every single minute? She hopes, but she doesn't know for sure. But God is the one who, when he promises, we can say, okay, that's different. God is saying upon himself that he, he is promising these things and we can have assurance that it's going to come. So the prophets look at all of this and we're gonna, this is where we're going to start flipping around. Those of you that were good at sword drills, if you were in Awana or in Sunday school and everything, this is like your moment. Okay, This is absolutely your moment. Enjoy. We're going to get paper cuts too. So they're looking at all of this and saying, okay, we know that David was promised this by God. We know that it's secure. We know that it's going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. Do, do we feel like that? We know that God has promised us things, but it hasn't happened yet, so we start to doubt. God, if you could speed this up, that would be great. right? We always want it on our timing. So we get to the prophets. Uh, flip to Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 23. The prophets conclude, okay, since this isn't happening yet, we know that God is the one who is living up to his end of, of this bargain. We know that the offspring and these kings have been rotten. They've, they've been terrible. They've been disobedient. Things aren't going the way that this has been 
been happening, so clearly this kingdom has not been established yet, they concluded that there will be one who will come who will actually fulfill all of the conditions that are required for this to happen. One will come who will meet these requirements, who will meet the conditions, who will be obedient. Ezekiel 37, 23, Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor the detestable things, nor will any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places, wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. We see that a promise will have to involve cleansing. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Again, this is prophecy foretelling about the one who will come to establish and to rule in this kingdom. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. And then we get to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, uh, to me, is basically the gospel writer of the Old Testament. Um, I love reading through the book of Isaiah. When we look at the whole of Scripture and pointing to Christ, we can clearly look in Isaiah and see him incredibly clearly. And Isaiah recognized that, again, with many of these other covenants, much like with Abraham and much like with Moses and with Noah, that God is making the covenant upon himself. So when we look and we read the Bible and we see these covenants, and it looks like there's conditions, but it still looks very certain, we can know that God is the one who will provide the way for it to be established. And this is what we see in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, because Isaiah recognized that God himself will provide this king. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. This sounds like a Christmas message now, doesn't it? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. I absolutely love those two verses here. Because Isaiah understands that it is God himself, not only who will provide this king, but who will actually be the one sitting on the throne to rule, to reign. Would we call any of us or any other king in the Bible the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace? Would we ever have called Solomon that? Or any of the other terrible kings that Pastor Ben's been telling us about? None of them are God. And, and Isaiah makes it so clear, so very clear, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon the kingdom. And again, we see it forever. All the way through, everything is pointing to the person of Christ. We know that as the line continues down, we know Jesus being a son of David. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 23, uh, calls the throne of David the throne of big Lord in your Bible, so throne of Yahweh. 
Yahweh is not just a, a person, right? Yahweh is Lord. The Lord himself will come as king and will sit upon the throne. Luke chapter 1, verse 31 to 33, and again, this sounds incredibly familiar. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, this is Gabriel talking to Mary, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Imagine being David. Did David truly understand what it is that he was being told? That through, his, through the line of David, one will come who will establish the kingdom of the Lord forever. This is a promise from God that this will happen. Does he, does he understand that it's going to be the very Son of God? God himself will be doing this. When we look at the covenant given to Abraham, uh, back in Genesis 15, we, we see this ceremony. Um, it, was, it was a very common ceremony that you would um, you'd sacrifice animals, you would cut them up into little pieces, you form it in two rows where there would be an aisle. Okay? Sound familiar to you guys? Do you guys do this a lot? Cut up animals in two rows and set things on fire and stuff? Yeah, Thursdays? Okay, me too. So th this would be a ceremony that a servant would do for any kind of lord or for a master, and it would be one of, of, of covenant, of commitment. And so as you would perform this ceremony and as you would go through, it was something that uh, it would symbolize that if you don't live up to your end of the, of the commitment of the covenant, then basically, you know those cut up pieces of animal? That that would end up kind of being you, to put it in a way. Um, that you would, base, you would die, that you would, be, you would be killed, right? Very, very serious implications here. Again, um, so we see this ceremony and, and God is coming to Abraham and he says, Abraham, go and do this. Now, if you were told, kill animals, chop them up into pieces, and form two rows and make sure there's an aisle, you'd say, oh, okay, wonder what this is about. Right? This isn't something that we commonly do. But Abraham knew everything that this was. He understood this was a form of the covenant. So he goes through, he's setting this up, and what happens? He would be the one that would go through, right? It's with God. God is obviously the master. He would be the one to perform the ceremony. But instead, what happens? Darkness falls. Fire comes, God, God, is a, God is a fiery pillar, and it's God himself who actually performs this ceremony of covenant. If you've never read Genesis chapter 15, I encourage you to look through it. It's really, really awesome. It's an incredible thing because God is saying to Abraham, he's giving him the promise of, the, of this people, of the great blessings he's giving him, the, the, all these blessings, and he is the one who then goes through and performs the ceremony himself, saying it's not based upon what it is that you do, Abraham, if you don't live up to it, but he's saying, I am promising upon myself that I will live up to the covenant. He is the one who walks through. And what's interesting as you read through that is that Abraham doesn't. The typical ceremony would be Abraham then going through, performing the ceremony as well, establishing the covenant relationship with God, but yet it's only God who goes through. As if to say, I am going to live up to my end, and if not, I should die. Also, if you don't live up to your end, I should die. 
Just think about that for a minute. God placing himself throughout that covenant relationship, establishing upon himself, just like we're seeing in, in, in this promise to David, that he will come as king and sit upon the throne, establishing upon himself that his promises are secure. And as we always see, him being the one to provide. He walks through, he performs the ceremony, and Abraham sees this and says, wow, God took the burden of this whole, all the consequences, the curse of the covenant curse, and placed it upon himself. Do we see that actually being played out at some point? Imagine, set the scene again where we see this cross behind me, right? All of Scripture pointing to Christ. We look at this covenant given to David and the establishment of the offspring. We know that that's going to continue on to Jesus. We look in Matthew chapter 1, uh, Luke chapter 1 as well. We see all of this and it's pointing to the person of Jesus, the one who will come and will establish the kingdom forever. Prophets foretold this in Ezekiel and Jeremiah um, and Isaiah Hundreds and hundreds of years before, all of Scripture testifying to this one time, this one person who will come and will establish the kingdom. And it's not merely a man, but it's the very Son of God who is God himself. And I understand there's a lot of history and there's a lot of information um, this morning. It's very, very different than any other time when I'm speaking. And I, I'm aware of this. But it's crucial that we understand and we're aware of what the covenants are because that's how God has revealed himself. This is how God has revealed his purpose, his plan, that from the very beginning in the book of Genesis, given to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to Noah and to Jacob, we see him actively revealing himself, showing his promise. Because without these covenants, there is no salvation. I want to make that point extremely clear. Without these covenants and without this being given to David and playing out all the way to the person of Christ, there is no salvation salvation. Are you thankful for salvation this morning? Are you thankful that God has established covenants to where he has promised upon himself the requirements for salvation? All of scripture testifying to the person of Christ. And so, so when we look at this, we, we see the scene of the crucifixion. We see that as, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, that it became dark. Darkness fell just like it did with the covenant um, back with Abraham. Christ himself became the curse of the covenant. Isn't that what we read? Christ became the curse. Think about that. That was supposed to be, that should be us. Our sin is what put him up there on the tree. Our sin is what was, our, the punishment for our sin is what ended up falling to him. And again, keeping in mind uh, that Genesis 15 picture of walking through, of the animals being ripped up and cut up into little pieces and being set aside, is that not what happened to Jesus Christ? Hanging on a cross, nails being driven into him, tearing him into pieces, darkness falling, and the wrath of God being placed upon him instead of us. The curse of the covenant was laid upon God himself through Jesus. The very wrath of God poured out upon him. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in verse 12, And he bare the sin of many, 
and made intercession for the transgressors. God himself made the promise for the establishment of the kingdom. God himself is the one who provided the sacrifice. The, the one sacrifice for all. Because remember, back in Old Testament, how many times do we see them having to sacrifice over and over and over and over again? We see God providing his son. We see in the person of Jesus the word actually becoming flesh. The very word it is that we hold, that many of you have within your Bibles, and the things that all of these, these men and women would be studying and learning about, all the things that the prophets spoke about, literally became flesh before them in Jesus Christ. Just think about that for a minute. Everything is that we read in the Bible, becoming flesh before your very eyes. Pastor Ben studying the, the steps of Jesus. We're looking at the things that Jesus did. That's the word, being flesh, lived out in front of these disciples. What that would have looked like. Truly understanding it. And we see, um, we see in, in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, and, and we see this, this interaction, and Jesus is talking talking with these two men, and, and they're basically saying to him, are you the only one that doesn't know what's happened here the last few days? This is after Jesus has died, um, but he, he's been resurrected, and he's walking with them, and they're saying, are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? And those of you that know Jesus' response is just fantastic. I mean, re reading in verse 25 through 27, he says, Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's going back to the Old Testament saying, Don't you know what the prophets have told you? Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Christ in the Old Testament. It's what the prophets talked about. It's what we see Genesis talking about, pointing to Christ and then he appears to his followers in Luke 24, verse 44 through 47. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all the things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto him, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Those are powerful verses. He's affirming everything that the prophets were speaking of that was going to come. He, he shows, he basically is telling them, in short, it's always been this way. You know the covenant given to Abraham. You know all the covenants from here on out. These people are ones that understood the scriptures. He opens their understanding in verse 47, and this is, this is the challenge for each and every one of us, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. The whole of scripture testifies to the person of Christ, the one who would come through the line of David to establish his kingdom the one who would die on the cross, becoming the curse for our sins. The sacrifice once, 
and for all. Testified about from the very beginning of creation, from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see that kind of being the thesis of the Bible. And we're seeing God, as Jesus, as he comes back, he dies, he hangs on the tree, and this is all planned, this is all talked about back in Isaiah. And verse 26, like he tells them on the road to Emmaus, ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Saying, should, I was supposed to have done this. This shouldn't be a surprise. You understand the covenant. God lived up to his end of, of the covenant so much that his own son was crucified on the cross. His perfect and sinless son died on the cross. And through that, what do we, what do we see? Verse 47, And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. We're thankful for our salvation. We're thankful for the remission of our sins. We're thankful that we can be sure in the promise that we will be in heaven with him forever and ever. And that's the message that we as the church are meant to carry out. Preaching in his name these truths. That from the very beginning, God was sending his son for the remission of our sins. That's the message that we preach. We preach Christ. We preach him crucified, but not staying dead, but living, raised again. And that's my challenge this morning, that we, that we would be able to, to reach out, that we would preach repentance, that we would preach remissions of sins, that we would preach the gospel, that we would preach Christ on the cross. It's incredibly important. But it's also it's awesome that we're able to look at his word, the full and complete word, and see God from the very beginning to the very end. Everything pointing to the person of Christ, knowing that whatever it is that we're going through, that God has been over everything and has always been in control in the midst of any circumstance. And we can have confidence in that promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. We thank you for, for your promises. We thank you for, for the cross. God, we're so thankful that we're able to look in your word and we're able to see uh, just from the very beginning that you've always had a plan and a purpose and that, that we, can, we can have full assurance that you're going to live up to your end of your covenant, that we see you clearly displaying your character, we, we see you displaying your heart, and, and we see your holiness, God. We, we thank you that as we read through your word and that we're able to fully see everything pointing to your son, that we're able to not only to see him, but that we're able to have assurance and that we're able to know that Christ came becoming the curse for us God, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love him. God, we thank you this morning that we're able to, to look in your word and to understand how it is that you've worked throughout history and that we're able to look forward and we anticipate your return where you, where you establish your kingdom and that even now you, you are ruling over this world. And, and God, we, just, we are so thankful that you are over all things and that we can have full assurance in your promise. In Jesus' name. Amen.